Good morning. It is exciting to be back with you and getting back into Ephesians. You can turn to Ephesians 5 with me. Um, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. So just warning you, we have a lot to cover. We're going to be going from Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9. And we're even going to look a little bit at 4. We had to pass over 4. I'm leaving in about 8 days for Africa. And so next week I'll finish with 6. And then we'll have a very special guest that you all love very much who will be coming back to 4 to finish out Ephesians 2 weeks from now. But today we have a lot to get through, and it's going to be very good, so bear with me as we try to get through uh, everything that God has for us this morning. And I really believe he's going to teach us out of his word, don't you? I know that. So let's get excited about that, and let's invite him right now to do just that, because we're relying on him, not on me, not on my preparation, not on our wisdom or knowledge or whatever. We're relying on the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning. Jesus, uh, we are so glad that you're here with us, and we're so thankful for your word and that we have it in our own language and that we can study it and that we can learn and that we can be transformed by your word. God, today we ask you to be uh, just powerfully speaking to each one of us through your word, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us. We surrender to you. You are the head of this church and it's you that we want to honor today. I pray that everything that we say and do would be glorifying to you and that you'd help each of us learn what you have for us and put it into application in our lives. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So today we're talking about the life of Christ. We started Ephesians 1 talking about the sufficiency of Christ. He's God. He's sufficient for anything and everything that any of us will ever encounter. We, wanted, we went into 2 and we looked at the work of Christ. It was amazing what Christ has done for each one of us. What he's done is unparalleled in history. We went into three and we talked about the gospel of Christ, right? This incredible mystery that had not been made known in previous generations, but now it is. And now the whole world needs to hear this good news of who God is and what he's doing. The first two chapters going into the third those first three were kind of focused on the vertical relationship between us and the Lord, right? And now the next three are how that works out in our lives. Four is all about how that works out in his church, and he is the head of his church. Five goes into how that looks in our lives and in all these different relationships that we find ourselves in in society. And the point being, God wants to shine through our lives he wants the whole world to see him in us, not just us trying in our own strength to be like him, right? He actually wants to live his life through ours. Next week, we'll get to six, which is all about the victory of Christ. It'll be very exciting. As we talk about five today, I want to just remind you of 1 Timothy 4.13. This is written to Timothy in Ephesus by Paul, and he tells Timothy to, vo to devote himself to preaching teaching, and the public reading of Scripture. Of course, in that day and age, they couldn't just go pick what translation they wanted. They couldn't just say, hey, do you want to use NASB today? Or how about CSB? <laughs> right? A lot of people might not have even had Scripture in their own hands. Probably the majority didn't. So it was very important that they could hear it publicly and that there was a public reading of Scripture. But as we work through this passage, I want to do that too. I want to read the, the word together because I believe the word is powerful. 
So we'll have to read a lot together today, but that's exciting that we can stand as one body reading his word together and letting his word work in our hearts. So as we jump into five, we're going to talk about following Christ's example. That's the beginning here. What does it look like to live Christ's life and to allow Christ to live his life through us? He shows us what that looks like in the beginning of this chapter. And then we're going to kind of see this hinge point where we learn about the power of Christ and living with his power. Because everything that we learn about in the beginning, we can't just do it on our own, right? It has to be an outflow of him through us. And then we're going to finish the chapter looking at growing in Christ-likeness in many different areas of life. And that's where we'll even tiptoe into six a little bit about how that looks between parents and children and employers and employees and things like that. So we have a lot to cover, but it's going to be very good. So I want to start with following Christ's example. This is going to be the beginning, the first uh, third of our, of our message this morning. And I want to start by reading together verses 1 through 14. So why don't we go ahead and read this together? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is graceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right, so let's jump into this a little bit. Uh, we're first called to imitate God as dearly loved children. And I wanted to start by saying, You are a dearly loved child of God. It's easy to lose sight of that, to start thinking of ourselves in terms of all the things that we didn't do right, or the ways other, people's, other people might think of us, or a million different other perspectives. And right now, I want all of us should just start with this kind of fundamental reminder that you are God's dearly loved children. Remind yourself of that. Uh, take a minute to, to remember who you are in Christ. That's where we have to start today. Now, as a dearly loved children, we imitate God. Not because it's a duty, but because it's a privilege to be like our Father. Now, I want to show you a picture here. This is a special picture. This is my son, Micah. And uh, I probably couldn't have talked him into sticking his hands in the back of a toilet, no matter what I offered him. But when I said, would you like to help me fix a toilet? He, you couldn't have stopped him with anything in the world. He wanted to be there fixing that toilet with me. Uh, he has that picture on his wall now. I'm going to ask him to come up here real quickly. 
<laughs> this is my dearly loved son. <laughs> and um, you can see he kind of is dressed like me today, huh? All right. Hey, Micah, why did you want to... Here, let's get over here where they can see you. There you go. Hey, Micah, why did you want to dress like this? To match. To match. Isn't that sweet? To match. Okay, you can go sit down. I love you. Um, dearly loved children want to match their daddies. It's, it's not complicated. And that's where Paul's starting here today. He's not giving us a to-do list and saying, you guys, shape up or ship out. <laughs> He's saying, as dearly loved children, let the Lord work in your life in such a way that he lives his life through yours, that your interactions with the people that you interact with become Christ-like interactions that demonstrate him to a world that desperately needs to see him. See, we're called to imitate him, and in a minute we're going to learn it's through his power. It's not in our own strength. But it says, dearly loved children, imitating him with his own power. This was Jesus' example. Remember in John 5, we see that he imitated his father. This was Paul's example. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The Christian life is not about trying harder in our own flesh, but it's about loving our Savior and surrendering to him as dearly loved children and allowing him to live his life through us, through the power of his Holy Spirit, whom he's given us as believers. So we read here that we're to imitate him. And he's referring back to four when he says, therefore, talking about a conscious decision to put off the old and to put on the new. We're, we're called to actually engage with the Lord on this. It's not just osmosis. We have to make a decision. Every day we encounter decisions, whether I'm going to do this, that, or whatever in my own strength, my own way, or whether I'm going to submit to him and allow him to live his life through me. It's a simple decision. And when we make that decision, he really shows up, and we'll see that today. I'm going to tell you a little story about my dear Kara over here. Yesterday morning, Kara was the first one up, and I said, hey, you want to go get something special for everybody for breakfast? And she said, yes. She's very adventurous. So we ran down to Smith's to grab some stuff for breakfast. And while we were there, I felt like the Lord was putting it on my heart to speak to a young man that was uh, stocking shelves. And we struck up a conversation, and then he, he put his earbud in his ear and got a call. And he was talking while he was doing his work on the phone. So we walked away, and I just consciously prayed, God, if you want us to talk to this man, you open the door, okay? So we get to the checkout. We haven't seen him yet. And we realize we had forgotten strawberry syrup. <laughs> So I said, oh, we got to go get strawberry. So we go back to get strawberry syrup. Guess who is right at the strawberry syrup? That young man, okay? So he, he asked, I said, hey, it's you again. And he asked, hey, what's the weather like out there today? He worked a night shift, so I don't think he'd been out that morning yet. And I said, it's wonderful, you know? But I said, I'll tell you what, every day with Jesus is, is incredibly special. And he goes, I was just talking to my friend about that. And his friend was stalking on the other side. And... Um, he goes, yeah, he goes, my friend just became a Christian. And, and I was telling this other guy, he's a different guy now. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I want you to catch two things here. One, if we just say, Jesus, I'm willing, you won't believe how many times he does through us what we couldn't do trying to muster it up on our own. 
It can, he lives his life through us when we surrender. The other thing I want you to catch is that when we do that, the world notices, just like this guy. He was telling his other non-Christian friend about a friend that had come to Christ and was totally different. It was an enigma to him. He was shocked by it. I asked him, have you ever taken that step? And he said, not yet. But you know what? God's working on his heart. You guys, when we let Christ work in our heart, when we surrender to him, he lives his life through ours in such a way that the world notices. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So we're called, it says in verse 2, to walk in love just like he did. The same command Jesus give us, gave us in John 13, to love like he did, right? So we, we walk in love for one another in this church, for those in our families and in our spheres and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. We walk in love for the least of these. We, we are called to walk in integrity just like he demonstrated in his life. He was sinless, we're told in Hebrews 4, and we all know that, but we're called to emulate his integrity and Paul goes through a list here. Immorality, and that's the actual Greek word pornea. It's talking about sexual sin there. Immorality, impurity, which is uncleanness even in motives. Greed, desiring what's not ours or what's others. Speaking in any way that isn't glorifying to God. We all have opportunities to speak on a daily basis, whether that's through text messages, emails, or conversationally. How is that glorifying God? What about coveting what isn't ours? He even talks about idolatry here. And he says this is stuff that should not be in the body of Christ, right? Because this is not imitating of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, such were some of you, but he's changed us. That's not who we are anymore. In him, we're very different. It's all, it's all, we're also told here not to be deceived by empty words in verse 6. And this is exactly parallel to what he says in Colossians 2. He says, don't be taken captive through empty philosophy. Now, Paul was reminding the Ephesian church to be on guard. He wasn't dealing with a lot of heresy in this church as he was in some other churches. In the Galatian church, he was dealing with the Judaizers and, and their heresy, right? And he, he was doing that in many of his epistles. But in Ephesians, he's not really addressing specific heresies. But that's not to say that those weren't flourishing in Ephesus. It's just the body of Christ up till that point had been on guard, right? In, in Acts 20, the last time Paul sits with the Ephesian elders, he tells them, savage wolves are going to come. He was already reminding them, savage wolves are going to come. He knew that the deception was coming. In fact, it was probably already there. And there would be a day when that when those deceivers would try to infiltrate the church. In 1 Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, we see several different possible philosophies that were infiltrating the church at that point. Um, this is a few years after the book of Ephesians is written, and I'm going to name some of them in just a minute. But before I get there, I wanted to mention Jesus commends this church in Revelation 2 for opposing the, the heresy of the Nicolaitans, which we'll mention in a minute. So this church had been warned. Timothy had been warned again. And they had done a good job of saying no to some of this false teaching. But still, it was in Ephesus. So let's look at some of the false teaching that was in Ephesus. There was feminism. The Artemis cult was a cult that was run by women with a female false deity, right? Artemis. And there was a, 
a um, context where these women priestesses were, sent, were surrounded by castrated males. Do you get the, the context? It was female superiority over men in the religious context of the Artemis cult. That, I believe, has a lot to do with Paul reminding Timothy in 2 that women should not usurp men. Remember that passage? I'll bring it up in a minute, but that was obviously something that was happening in Ephesus. There was a, not an equal rights kind of thing, but a, a women domineering over men. I'm going to tell you the word that he uses in verse 12 there too in a minute. It's kind of uh, intense. Judaism, the Judaizers' teachings were also there. The, the Jewish people were there. Remember I showed you a few weeks ago that menorah that was carved into the footsteps of the library of Celsus? But also the Judaizers' teachings seem to have been there. It looks like that in 1 Timothy as well. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 7, we see some of those kinds of things popping up. Uh, hedonism, the Nicolaitan heresy. Jesus refers to it in Revelation 2 and also later. But he commends them for saying no to it. But the Nicolaitan heresy, it says, uh, or Irenaeus tells us, was leading to unrestrained indulgence. Isn't that intense? I mean, pretty bad stuff. Complete hedonism. This is why we got to be careful who we put in leadership. That was the same Nicholas, Irenaeus tells us, that was one of the deacons appointed back in Acts 6, right? Who had not been checked carefully and had ended up becoming the proponent of a false doctrine. Okay, asceticism. Hymenaeus was teaching, we read in 1 Timothy, a harsh treatment of the body, this form, it was kind of the opposite of hedonism. And it was incipient Gnosticism, scholars would say. And there's even uh, evidence of this beyond this. We also hear, I think I have another slide here, that, uh, that Serinthus was in Ephesus teaching an early form of Gnosticism. We're told that by Irenaeus as well. And we're even told the story of John, the apostle, who at that time was living in Ephesus, running into Serenthesis in a bathhouse. Can I see a picture of that? Right there, most likely. There were a couple bathhouses, though. And uh, so this false teacher that was teaching kind of an early form of Gnosticism and asceticism uh, was in Ephesus and, and actually had a conflict with John right there. Uh, just... Side note, doesn't really mean anything in this message, but John probably died in Ephesus, and they believe his grave is there. And, of course, uh, we'll never know for sure till we see Jesus with our eyes. But I don't think there's another proposed gravesite for the Apostle John. All right, Clement tells us that 1 Timothy 6, 20, that the Gnostics believed that that was written against them. So it's absolutely true that that even in that day, they knew some of this heresy was there, and they believed Paul was trying to attack that heresy. So in the context of all these false teachings, Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Stick to the word. Right? I just want to highlight that almost all those are still with us today, right, in different versions, and there are many more. I want to tell you the biggest one in our society is atheism. I talk to atheists all the time, and they assume that they have an intellectual high ground, don't they? You know, atheism is the biggest empty lie that ever has been. It's an absolute negation, which is a logical fallacy. And it's a worldview without evidence. The, the evidence for atheism is that you don't have evidence. Well, even if that's true, that doesn't mean atheism is true, right? But I believe we have lots of evidence. <laughs> so it's always fun to ask atheists, what evidence led you to atheism? And they go, 
<laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I thought you didn't have the evidence. Well, maybe I don't, but that doesn't mean atheism is true. Do you get what I'm saying? This is an empty lie that has hijacked our society. And we need to be bold about sharing God's love with this world, but also letting the world see it through us. Because a lot of times they see hypocrisy, and that's all the evidence they need to say it's not true. Right? So we need to let Christ live his life through ours. Okay, we're called to walk in the light just like Jesus did. He called himself the light of the world. And John in 1 John tells us all about how we're called to walk in the light and fellowship with him and all that we do. I just want to highlight this relationship versus fellowship difference that even Gregory alluded to earlier this morning. Your relationship with the Lord is one that is secure that began with you saying yes to him and believing in him. At that point, you were made a son of God, and he put his Holy Spirit in you, we heard right in the first chapter of Ephesians, as a seal guaranteeing your salvation until the day of Christ. Right? So just like my beautiful children over here are my children. That's their relationship to me. They can't change it. They could do something horribly mean and terrible. It would not change their relationship with me. They are my children. I'm their father. That doesn't change. Fellowship, though, is the closeness, the communication, the interaction, all those types of things. And that does go up and down. When, when we're told in 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins and that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, the context of that is fellowship, right? We are called to confess that sin, allowing that fellowship to be restored. But what we got to understand is that our relationship as dearly loved children is based on what he did for us at the cross and our saying yes to him. It's not based on our daily performance. And a lot of Christians mistake that, and they start to question where they're at with the Lord based on their performance. Instead of submitting to him and saying, I'm yours, thank you that I'm your dearly loved child. So we're called to walk in the light just like he did. We're called to walk in a way that pleases God in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We're even called to take a stand against the things that don't please him, we're told. Okay, so imitating Christ, loving him, loving others with his love, walking in integrity, walking in the light, saying no to deception, pleasing him in every way. That's a tall order, right? I can't do this on my own. I can't fabricate this on my own. This is what the life of Christ looks like in a person, but it's not something that a person can fabricate. It's something only the Lord can do. Only the Lord can produce his life in a person, right? But don't we get stuck trying to do it on our own? I love Paul Tripp's analogy of, of uh, apple stapling. <laughs> trying to staple apples to a tree. You ever heard that one? <laughs> it's wonderful. I heard it in, in the birds class on marriage. It was an incredible class. But he said, you know, sometimes we take apples and we try to staple them to a dead tree. <laughs> instead of going down and looking at the roots. We can't make this stuff happen in our own strength. We have to rely on the Lord here. The Christian life is not just difficult, it's impossible, right? It's impossible in our own strength, but it's very possible in his, because it's not difficult to him to live his life. He's very good at it, and he can live it through each one of us. So this is where we come to the next point of living with his power. If we want to imitate Christ as dearly loved children, we have to get back to allowing him to do it through us, letting him live his life through us in his power. 
So we're going to read the next few verses here together, verses 15 through 20. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. All right, so we have to do this in his strength. We can't do it on our own. We're called here to walk in his wisdom. We're called here to walk in his will making the most of our time. He's contrasting that with the fruit of darkness, which he said is unprofitable. It's not worth anything. It is a waste of time. Sometimes I tell guys that I get to work with that you will never regret following the Lord. (laughs) Maybe your expectations won't all pan out. Maybe your plans won't all happen. (laughs) Maybe your hopes, even for ministry, won't all pan out. But there will never be a day that you've follow the Lord that you look back and say, I wish I didn't do that. When we follow the Lord, we will never look back and say it was unprofitable. We will know with confidence that surrendering to him is always the best. I can promise you that. We're called to walk according to his will, making the most of our time. Uh, This only happens as we allow him to live through us, like I've been saying, as we abide in the vine, we're told in John 15. See, Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. But through him, we can. He will bear his fruit through us as we abide in him and surrender to him and allow him to do what only he can. So I've told some of you that my college degree, before going to and doing, we did seminary after college and all that, but in college, I did chemistry, okay? Some of you are chemists in here, right? I know some of you have talked to me before. But... I thought it would be fun to take modern physics, and I'm not a physicist. Some of you are physicists, and you're very smart. I have utmost respect for you. Took modern physics, and about the first day I realized this is not the class for me. (laughs) This is not where I want to be. So I talked to Dr. Norton. I said, what do I got to do to withdraw from this class? And he said, oh, Nate, just stick around. You'll be just fine. And uh, I was a little insecure as a, I guess I was a senior in college then, maybe a junior or something like that. And I didn't know how to say, no, I want to leave this class. (laughs) So I kept going to the class and getting more and more anxious as the semester went on. And I just, I didn't do homework because I couldn't. (laughs) I didn't know how to. It was way over my head. And every time I'd try to withdraw, Dr. Norton would say, hey, just get me that homework and you'll be fine. And I almost would have a panic attack because I hadn't done any of the homework. So I got to the last week before school, begging him to withdraw. And he said, just get me your homework. So I, I thought if I give him my homework, he's going to at least let me withdraw, right? Maybe it's a couple weeks out. I did a whole semester's worth of homework in an afternoon. And if you've ever taken advanced physics, you know, I can promise you, I didn't get a single problem correct. <laughs> Guaranteed. He gave me 100% for working him out. <laughs> we get to the final. It's a take-home final. I didn't know how to do any of it. I went to his office and... I, I, I just said, I, I can't do this, Dr. Norton. And he babysat me through the whole final. <laughs> I ended up with a B-plus in that class. And I know <laughs> it's by the grace of Dr. Norton alone. 
<laughs> I didn't deserve it at all. But it's a great analogy to me of the work of Christ in me. I had, to, I had to spend lots of time with Dr. Norton, allowing him to help me through this process. I had to go to him and surrender to him and ask his help in what I couldn't do on my own. And he got me through it. Guys, that's a human example that falls far short of the power of the living God in us. If Dr. Norton can get me through modern physics, the Lord God that created this universe can get you through anything you will ever face. And he can produce his life in you because he's promised you. He's commanded us these things, and he never commands us to do something he doesn't empower us for. I promise. Okay, we're called to walk in his power. This is this big hinge point. The Holy Spirit is God. We read that clearly in multiple places. Genesis 1, right? He's involved in creation. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira and lying to God. The Holy Spirit, Gregory, always mentions that one. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Lord is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. And when you put your trust in Jesus, at that very moment when you believed in him, he put his Holy Spirit in you. He tells us that in John 7, right? That those who believed in him would later receive. So you believe in him, you receive the Holy Spirit. And we're told as believers that he, he seals us and guarantees our salvation in Ephesians 1. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3, and six, that he comes to live in us as his temple, and even in 12, that he baptizes us into the family of God. So when we believe in Jesus, we are indwelt with his spirit. He lives in us. That begins at salvation. But we're also commanded in verse 18 here to be filled with the spirit. I kind of want to use a little analogy that I think might make sense. We have a house that usually at two in the morning is very dark, <laughs> Electricity is flowing through the house. It's all there, but it's dark until I flick the switch. Does that make sense? Right? Each one of us have the Holy Spirit of God in us, capable of everything that he's told us here, but there's a point where we need to consciously surrender to him and ask him to live through us in a way that only he can. And that's a point that we all kind of have to encounter pretty much on a daily basis, I think. And Paul contrasts it here. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When you drink wine, it causes you to do and say things that you wouldn't otherwise do and say. As Christians, we're not supposed to do those types of things, say those types of things, or act those types of way. But it's an incredible contrast. When the Holy Spirit empowers a person, he empowers a person to do and say things that are not humanly natural. He empowers us to love people to have peace, to have joy, to have patience. He, all the fruits of the Spirit, he empowers us to share our faith boldly in a way that's not humanly natural because it's him living his life through us in a way that we never could. Do you get what Paul is saying here? Let him be in control of what you say. Let him be in control of what you do. Let him be in control of what you think. This isn't a to-do list. This is something that we as dearly loved children say yes to the Lord in, and we allow him full reign over every aspect of our lives. J. Oswald Sanders defines it this way, to be filled with the Spirit simply means that the Christian voluntarily surrenders life and will to the Spirit. Through faith, the believer's personality is permeated, mastered, and controlled by the Spirit. I'm going to share one more analogy. I want to show a picture to you of my first car. I didn't make this analogy up, but it's a good one. There was a, 
a time my sophomore year of college where me and some friends were going camping. And we're sitting in traffic. It was a construction zone, and we'd been there for eons. And young college guys start thinking, I wonder if we could push this car, right? We're strong. We can do this, right? So we start pushing this thing. And before you know it, it's going way faster than I thought we'd get it going. So I'm going, guys, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> I look back, and the guys are way back there. <laughs> I'm trying to stop this thing. Smack. It nails this very junky old trailer on the back of a pickup truck in front of us. And we never got going that fast, and there was only a short distance between us and the next car. But the guy gets out, and he comes back and goes, what in the world were you guys doing? <laughs> and he says this statement that I'll never forget. Y'all must have mashed potatoes for brains. <laughs> um, it was a hilarious, hilarious story, but it illustrates something. We were trying to do something in our own strength, and it was hard to get it going and hard to stop it. And that's how the Christian life is. When we try to crank this out in our own strength, a lot of times we do more harm than good or we don't do anything at all because we are insufficient. But I'll tell you what, if I would have just turned that key, things would have been a whole lot different. Does that make sense? See, we're called to surrender to him, flick the switch, turn the key, let him live his life through us. I think the, the car analogy is a Campus Crusade for Christ analogy. And I heard it and I thought, that just so perfectly describes it. It's hard to push that car on my own, and when it gets away from me, it's no fun. But if I can surrender to the Lord and let him do it, he can do what I never could. All right. Paul puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. We are walking the life of Christ by faith, through grace, right? We're allowing him to do through us what only he can. And then that starts to show up in all of our relationships as we're surrendered to him. And that's what Paul gets into here. Growing in Christ's likeness. I'm gonna split this up, these last few passages, and spend a little time on each one. So first, let's read 21 through 33. It's going to be the last long passage that we read, and then there'll be some short ones. It says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself." For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. 
All right, a lot's there, and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to try and, try and work through these passages shortly. I want to talk first about submission, and it's hupotasso, uh, and it, it, it was a, a military term that, that referred to uh, a submission of one's resources under another's control. This wasn't a domineering term, but it was saying, be on the same page. Fight the same battles. Don't fight each other. Maybe a way to think of it is, Paul is saying, wives, don't be your husband's opponent. Be your husband's proponent. Right? And if we look back at the curse, 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul references Genesis 3, talking about the curse. And right there we see this desire for control being a part of the curse. And Paul's saying that's not how it's to be in the body of Christ. You get what I'm saying? There's supposed to be cooperation. And especially if a wife feels that sense of uh, a desire to usurp over her husband, Paul's saying that's not where we should go. The word that he uses in 1 Timothy 2, and there he's talking about the church, and I think he's referencing what's going on in their culture, and he's referring back also to Adam and Eve, is one that's only used once in all of Scripture, and it means to, to kill with your own hands. He was talking about a very serious issue that was going on there where the women, supposedly in this Artemis cult, were usurping, controlling, and domineering over the men. And Paul's saying this isn't supposed to happen in the church, and surely that's not supposed to happen in a family. So uh, he's not saying that, that a husband is just to sit there and call the shots, and the wives are just to sit in the back and do whatever the husband says. There is a picture of partnership here as one flesh, but where a wife joins the husband and says, I am not your opponent, I am your proponent. Aaron is such a joy to me that she has persevered through so much as my wife, as we've sought God, as we've walked by faith, as we've gone through trials in ministry, and she's supported me every step of the way. And that is wind in my sails, okay? So he's saying, wives, be on the same page with your husbands, do not try to usurp them or uh, fight them. And then husbands, it's the same kind of thing for husbands in a different sense. I like what Eric used to say. He said, a wife submits to the husband's lead and a husband submits to the wife's need. Right? As husbands, we're called to lay down our lives for our wives. Peter talks about that too in chapter 3. It's an incredible picture, but it's something that should really define the way that we live out our Christian lives in marriage. It's a couple living as one flesh with the Lord doing his will through us. With the husband taking the initiative to lead by example in a loving and sacrificial way, and with the wife responding to that, choosing to walk in cooperation with her husband in a spirit-filled way. That's a beautiful picture, and the world needs to see more and more of that. If you're struggling in your marriage, there's hope. I want to encourage you with that. There is hope, okay? God has great things for you. Get into a good marriage class here at this church. I'm sure you'll grow tremendously. Okay, he also goes into this issue of Christ-likeness in our relationships with parents. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of 6 here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So, Young children of parents, honor your parents. David Hopkins mentioned to me, though, that this passage also was first in the Old Testament, one that was shared with adults who were called to care for their aging parents. 
There's a whole lot going on here. So whether you're the young child of parents or the adult child of parents, honor your parents, serve your parents, love your parents. Okay, let's look at Christ-likeness and relationships with children. Uh, Verse four right here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see this uh, in the New Testament. Colossians 3 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And in Deuteronomy 6, we see this incredible passage. It says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. We're called to disciple our children, to love them, to help them learn how to imitate Christ, and to do that by example. I remember Chip Ingram in his book, Effective Parenting in a Defective World, saying, your kids are going to become what you are. (laughs) Uh, Live the example that you want to see them follow, because that's going to speak as loud as any words you ever teach them. Okay, I'm going to jump into a passage that, that can be a little bit tricky here, verses 5 through 8, and just Let's read through 9, and then we'll talk about it. Let's read verses 5 through 9. We'll go through all of them. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service, as to the Lord and not to men." knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Let's read verse 9 too. Can we read verse 9 too on the slide? It's the next slide, I think. Okay, I'll read it for you. (laughs) It's okay. Um, And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Okay, slavery in the Roman Empire, I'm going to throw a slide up. But slaves, there was a whole spectrum of slaves. It wasn't like everyone in in slavery was just one kind of slave. Here we see some slaves of an upper-class Roman citizen traveling to the baths. We saw the picture of the bathhouse earlier with uh, with their master carrying towels, clothes, things like that that she would need at the baths. Some slaves had it pretty good, didn't even, weren't even confined to their master's houses, were able to work on their own, almost like a, a tradesperson would today. Some slaves had it much worse. Whatever that spectrum, I think something that we can draw from this today is whatever our situation in society were to glorify God in it. Slaves in Ephesus probably made up around a quarter of the population. There was a lot of slavery there. In Galatians 3.28, we read that in Christ, that difference between slave and free is gone. Paul wasn't advocating slavery. In fact, um, he he goes on to condemn it in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, Slaves he called to work as unto the Lord, that God would be glorified. And in 1 Timothy 6, he says the same thing. He says that they shouldn't let their behavior uh, give God a bad name in the way that they interacted with their masters. In our workplaces, is Christ coming out in a way that he is glorified? And if you have employees, same thing. Paul says to show your slaves justice and fairness with the fear of God in Colossians 4. He again condemned slave trading in 1 Timothy 1. And he even told Philemon 
to treat Onesimus as his dear brother in the Lord. That's not the picture of slavery that a lot of people in that world had. So he's by no means condoning slavery here, but he is saying whatever your work employment, whether employer, employee, slave, free, however you want to call it, God desires to be glorified in your workplace. Just like he desires to be glorified in your family. He wants the world to see him and how you interact in those relationships. And finally, he wants to, see, he wants to be seen in how we interact as a church. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it's all I'm going to do. And like I said, we had a lot to cover this morning, so we're coming to the end of it. But Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, let's read it together. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Church, he wants to be seen in how we interact with each other in this body. He desires to to show himself to this world as a loving church that loves each other, that speaks to each other kindly. He wants to live his life through us. So in all these different things that we've seen, when I'm arguing with my spouse, am I going to surrender to him and allow him to live through me? When I'm frustrated with my kids or with my parents, am I going to let him live through me? When I'm having trouble in the workplace, am I going to let him work through me? When I have bitterness with somebody in this body, am I going to let him work through me? That's what he desires. I got to show you a last picture here, and this is my DNA report. I bet you're shocked to find that I'm mostly Irish. (laughs) I actually didn't know that. I thought I was German, French, and Spanish. (laughs) But anyway, uh, the Irish comes out, right? And look look at my precious redhead here. It comes out there too, that DNA. This DNA cannot be stopped. It is going to come out. And I wanted to throw this up here as just a last reminder When we are surrendering to the Lord and allowing him to do what only he can in our lives, he is going to live his life through us. And the world will notice it just like they notice this red hair. They're going to see it. I can't fabricate this no matter how hard I try. (laughs) I can't change the color of this hair. But that DNA does it without me even thinking of it. It's It's a simple analogy, but God is calling us today to an application point of saying, will you surrender to me and say yes to me? He promises in 1 John 5 if, that we, that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he, he'll hear us and answer us. When I encounter these hard situations I just talked about, and I say, God, I need you, and I want you to be glorified in my life, and I simply can't do it on my own. Will you fill me with your spirit and empower me to do what only you can? Do you believe he can answer that little prayer? I know he can. Some of you today are thinking, man, I've never begun a relationship with Christ. I don't even know what it looks like to have Christ living through me because Christ isn't even in me. The Bible is so clear that God loves you, uh, that he created you to be in relationship with him, but that because of sin, you've been separated from him. He's perfect and none of us are. The Bible is also very, very clear that anyone who believes in him as Savior and Lord will be forgiven, will be saved, will be adopted into his family. Everything I talked about today, the life of Christ through us, it all begins with that simple step of saying yes to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. I don't care how you do that. If you want to pray silently in your mind, that's fine. But if you've never taken this step, I invite you to say yes to Jesus today. 
You could say something like this, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Today I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. The Bible is absolutely clear that if you believed in Jesus Christ today, that you've been adopted into his family and that you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life of meaning and significance with him on this earth. Amen. Now for the rest of us, if you do know Christ, he desires to live his life through you. I know that with all my heart and I know he's sufficient. Uh, Your past is behind you. Don't get stuck on it. Don't worry about it. Let him take care of that. Choose today simply to say, yeah, Jesus, live your life through me. I trust you by faith to do what only you can. We learned today about following Christ's example, living with Christ's power, and growing in Christ's likeness. I told you that you can't do this in your own strength, but that he has given you everything you need, and he's put his Holy Spirit in you who can do this through you, and he's waiting for you simply to surrender and say yes to him on a daily basis. A dear friend of mine, Russ Akins, always says, we should do a throne check every 15 minutes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good reminder. Let's consciously be surrendering to him continually throughout our days. But remember, we do this as dearly loved children. We do this out of intimacy with a father that loves us as dearly loved children. Next week, we're going to talk about the victory of Christ. Uh, until then, let me just pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for this precious body of believers that you love so dearly. I thank you for helping us get through Ephesians 5 and parts of 6 and 4 today. It was a lot to get through. But I pray that what you taught us out of your word would really sink into our hearts and that you would live your life through us in a way that only you can. We trust you to do this in your power. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks.